Welcome to Promethea Rising. My guest for this episode is Mark Chakart. Mark is an energy and environmental economist. He is also author of The Citizen's Guide to Climate Success. Mark is a professor of sustainable energy in the School of Resource and Environmental Management at Simon Fraser University. Originally from Vancouver, he did his doctorate at the Institute for Energy and Economics and Policy at the University of Grenoble in 1987. Offered a position at Simon Fraser University upon graduation, he leapt at the chance to return to his beloved hometown with its beautiful setting of ocean and mountains. He has been at SFU ever since, except for taking a leave from 1992 to 1997 to serve as chairman and CEO of the British Columbia Utilities Commission. He has made many contributions to energy and climate policy at the national and international level. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. Your contribution to energy and climate change policy over the years at the national level and the international level has been considerable. What's been the most personally impactful for you? How have you felt you've made the most difference and where has where was that? That's a, a good question and a difficult question. <laughs> and I you know I, I'm an academic who is very applied. And in that sense, I do research on the effectiveness of climate policies. And then I advise politicians on that. And then the world moves on. And the world has slowly moved in the direction of things I've been saying. But was it because of me? <laughs> you know, those, that's so hard to say. Because you can always look at other people that were involved in that. So basically, if I was to characterize this in a general sense... It is that I was trained as an energy economist. I did my PhD at a, a school in France that was very well known for, for you know, I, I deliberately sought it out to do my PhD there. What you find out when you do academic work like that is that what the experts can agree on, sometimes the rest of the public or large parts of the public and the politicians that spring up can get that and understand that. And sometimes they can't. And so my job or our job as applied academics is to try to help with that. And so if you were to ask me what was most impactful, I would say that very early on, so, you know, I'm talking, I was 1989, I was a new professor and sent to Paris at the International Energy Agency by the Mulroney government with economists from other countries to talk about how do we get greenhouse gas emissions to stop growing at that point? And it, is, it was clear then, and it is clear today, that the Earth's crust is full of fossil fuels, chock-a-block full, as a colleague of mine liked to say. And fossil fuels are an amazing source of energy. And so what it means is they brought great benefits to humanity, and they could still help about five to six billion people on this planet improve their lifestyles in, in the poorer parts of the, of the planet. And so we have to be able to convince politicians to either put a price on the emissions, um, the CO2 emissions from burning fossil fuels, or regulate the technologies and energy forms that are allowed to be sold. 
So in other words, you ban coal-fired power plants, you ban gasoline cars, uh, you ban natural gas heating from homes. So those kind of policies have to happen. And what I can say is that I've had to be beating the drum on that through any venue that I could, op-eds, uh, CD Howe reports, intergovernmental panel on climate change, special briefings to cabinets and prime minister or premier offices and mayors and so on. And what has happened is slowly governments who are more sincere have realized that you have to either put a price on carbon, so some kind of carbon tax or cap and trade, or you have to put some kind of regulation. So, you know, even most recently in Canada, the, the conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, coming out and saying, we are willing to put in policies that independent experts agree would achieve a certain amount of emission reductions. So that transition has occurred. But is it because of people like me? Or, or is it because all the other stuff just kept not working? You know, we'll just give information, we'll do advertisements, we'll give some government subsidies. So my answer is the you know the policy world has moved in the direction I was I've been advocating long and hard and I just have no idea how much people like me can take credit for that. Interesting. So has your core message since 1989 been fairly consistent or have you felt that it's evolved over the over the intervening decades? Uh, it hasn't changed at all. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. As a younger scholar, I was more prone to think that we might run out of fossil fuels, so things like peak oil and peak gas that were so prevalent not that long ago. I held some of the, I mean, I was less confident about uh, things in the late 80s and early 90s as I started as a new academic. I also was somewhat seduced by the idea that energy efficiency would be cheap, that the cheapest and first thing you should do is energy efficiency. And but, but by the early 90s, the evidence was overwhelming that this was the wrong way to go about it. It actually helped us stay on the bad path. We should have been, and I was, advocating fuel switching. You have to stop using gasoline cars. You have to stop heating homes with natural gas. You have to stop burning coal to make electricity. And so by the early 90s, and, and yes, this is a huge challenge, which is all the messaging about, oh, we'll just do things more efficiently. And you try to explain to people, do you understand what the population of the planet is? Do you understand that you can have the most incredible efficiency outcome as people you know, get better standards as, as six or seven billion people? So not the whole population, but 80% of the planet's population get better off. You do understand that efficiency is not going to do it. We should be fuel switching. And that delay is partly the problem we're in now. And so people who focused on energy efficiency to the exclusion of other things have been a real part of the problem, although they wouldn't see it that way. So would you describe that sort of at the core of the change that you're trying to lead is that fuel switching argument? It is. It is. Well, well I, and I would even say, okay, there's one thing that has changed for me. Um, I started to realize, and this was in the, uh, I had about a 10-year period when I was one of seven international experts advising the Chinese government. So one thing that has changed for me is I've become much more open to every kind of solution. So people, you know, in the past, I might have said, we have to stop using fossil fuels. But by the time I got to the year 1999, 2000, I was willing to say, you know what? If some regions of the planet have a lot of fossil fuels and that fossil fuels are fantastic in so many ways, 
then who are we to try to tell them that we must annihilate their economy? Alberta, you can have no economy. What we should be telling them is you can't do emissions. And so it became less, so fuel switching is important at the end use level in our cars and our furnaces and so on. But at the, at the other end, if someone can use fossil fuels and make hydrogen or electricity while capturing the CO2 and burying it, you know, in their region where they're making this zero emission final product, I think it's unwise to try to stop them from doing that, but say, good, you're part of the solution. Let's all embrace. If some jurisdiction has nuclear plants and wants to refurbish them and continue them, you know, and, and other jurisdictions that we trust can do that. If someone's using biofuels, even though we know we can't replace all, you know, all oil and gas or all gasoline and diesel in our, in our vehicles with biofuels, it doesn't mean we can't get to maybe 20% of what was gasoline and diesel is replaced by biofuels as we've seen in uh, Sweden and Finland. And so it's possible. And so I've become very, very open to anything as like, don't let perfection be the enemy of good. So anything that takes us towards the goal of reducing emissions and eliminating emissions is, is open in your, in your sort of mind as open possibilities. Yeah, and I think I was fairly open to it early on because I'm an evidence-based person. And I, I also think about the challenges of human psychology. So, you know, if you tell someone they're going to annihilate their economy, they're going to deny the climate science and so on. But I think as I learn more about the technologies and the possibilities, I was quite shocked around 1998 when I realized that the technologies to separate CO2 from a fossil fuel were ones that we'd had for 100 years and we knew what they would cost, that CO2 pipelines for sending the CO2 somewhere to bury it had existed for decades and we knew how, how to make them, how to operate, what they cost to operate, and that injecting CO2 into the ground, we'd actually been doing that in various places for various reasons. For example, even in northern British Columbia and northern Alberta, it's called acid gas injection, where in a natural gas field, if you take out gas that has a lot of uh, hydrogen sulfide and CO2, then you could just bury that, inject that in sedimentary layers. So my point to, to cut to the, the chase is just that, that that was interesting. And it led to me trying to help find a solution and to get bring people together. So I did write the book, Sustainable Fossil Fuels, in which I was, you know, and I called it the unusual suspect in the quest for clean and enduring energy in 2004. And that, that book, I'm happy to say, won the Donner Prize in 2005. So other people sort of recognized, wow, here's something that might help us move forward. So that was a bit of a change um, for me from my initial position. I'm interested to know your thoughts on a lot of the government funding that's currently flowing for home energy retrofits. There's obviously a lot of attention on that nationally. How does that fit into your thoughts? <laughs> Good question. And that's why it's funny when you say, or you ask, you know, what was my contribution? So I, I do end up getting to say my piece in various debates. A couple of times I've been asked if I would serve as a deputy minister, an assistant deputy minister, and I've said no. Um, but what it what it means is that you're um, you people ask for your input, but then the door closes and you're on the outside of the door when the final decision is made. So I can say, so I don't always know what my contribution was, you know, or or 
what that outcome will be. I can tell you that I'm someone who has you know, argued long and hard, if government's going to spend any money to retrofit homes, they should make a condition of the expenditure that fuel switching occurs and that they're not there yet, or at least most governments are not there yet. Um, the city of Vancouver is is very close to a bylaw that would, you know, new buildings would not be allowed to be connected to natural gas. We have uh, cities in the U.S. that have done that. But anyway, so yeah, my so that's new buildings. And if it's existing buildings and we're retrofitting them, then I just say, come on, government, if you say there's a climate emergency, for heaven's sakes, why would you retrofit a house and then step, have it still burning fossil fuels? Because now you almost kind of lock that in economically for a long time to come. And energy efficiency, it, as I say, it just doesn't cut it. it uh, and I've done a lot of research in this area and I know the literature well and I'm a reviewer for some of the leading journals. And I can tell you that the research shows that there's all these rebound effects as well, that people still hooked up to natural gas will think of a way to have a driveway heater or a patio heater or, a, uh, or a, you know, an outside uh, jacuzzi. These other things, devices, swamp everything when you try to do efficiency. I, I'm not saying you can't, that efficiency doesn't make a contribution, but I think it focuses us wrongly and we end up thinking we're doing something where we're not doing nearly as much as we need to. You mentioned Vancouver and might be moving down this path and and really taking a focus on fuel switching. In general, what do you see the role of municipal government and communities in this conversation? Obviously, a lot of communities across the country are undertaking community energy plans. What do you see the opportunities or maybe the downsides of that work? Yeah, and that's a that's an interesting question because just to be clear, it, it uh, and maybe you can guess, I, I'm caught between two worlds. I never want to discourage people because it's we need that. We need enthusiastic people who want to make a difference. And when they feel that they're not empowered, let's say the provincial government isn't doing it, or it's even a government in place that they don't think is very climate sincere and they don't see evidence for that, or a federal government. or So you're always trying to say, what can I do in my community? And I never want to dampen that. But what I do is I try to help nudge people a little bit. As someone said about my recent book, The Citizen's Guide to Climate Success, I try to nudge them just to maybe a little clearer thinking about you know what they can do and therefore what they should also be pushing for at a higher level of government. So, for example, when it comes to cities, frustration with state, provincial, federal governments, in, especially in, in richer countries, frustration at the local level has, has led in sort of a movement over the last five, seven years where city governments have said, we're going to get to net zero and like we're going to do it. And so I build, you know, what I call truth tests. They're energy economy models that will, we now do them with a, what's called a GIS, geographic information system model, which means we can look at land use planning and infrastructure. So transit lines or just regular bus lines, but also active mobility. So walking and cycling paths and, and then changes in urban form gradually as you zone so that you have high density nodes, you know, near transit pickups, you have more opportunities for people to walk, you have mixed use, you know, the, there's the, all this jargon terms, the complete city, the smart city, the, 
da, 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 da. All of this stuff is very important in my view, especially for making cities more livable and, and for a whole bunch of other benefits, including it can be local air pollution and just, just so many aspects of a livable, more equitable city. But at the same time, I have to point out, and here we go back to that fuel switching again, that the emissions in a city you know, are almost entirely the transportation system and the building. So if you're not, and, and if you think that you're going to mode shift, and what that means is switch people out of cars into, into those other modes, transit, active mobility, less moving around, you can do some of that. But if you look at the policies that we're using to try to do that, and if you look at how our cities are really structured and how people like, many people like to live, not all, and then you look at the Scandinavian cities that, you know, when I look at Oslo, Copenhagen, Helsinki, Stockholm, and there's other Northern European cities as well, where they've done a lot of the things we're talking about, that I just talked about, mode shift, making it really convenient for bicycles and so on and so forth. And these are fairly cold climates, like much of Canada. And what you see is that we might be, if we, if after 20 years, we get closer, more of our Cities and even towns get a little closer to Scandinavian cities and towns, then we might reduce emissions by 10%. And, you know, that's like, so that's what I say truth test. Like, we, and I can send you later links to publishing we've done in top journals that were, and we didn't want to come up with that outcome, but it was just, we simulated all the things the cities were trying to do, and then we checked it against Scandinavian cities and said, oh, good, we did get the reduction in vehicle use that now maps out to Oslo or Stockholm. And guess what? Emissions over a 20-year period have gone down by 10 15% when they need to go down by 80 or 90%, which is what the, the city government was claiming. So then you say, how do you get cars to fuel switch? How do you get buildings to switch? Maybe some cities have a bit more role on the building side. On the vehicle side, they can you know, restrict where cars go. They, they can start, and I've tried to help cities like the city of Vancouver with, okay, I know we won't allow parking in this area for internal combustion engine cars. Or we, you know, there are things you can do, but you really, it would really be good for city governments to keep saying, and we're going to do this in tandem, you know, with a higher level of government that we support. It is raising the carbon tax or putting in a zero emission vehicle standard or putting in a clean natural gas regulation, which we're working on in British Columbia right now for buildings. So those are the kind of ideas. The Scandinavian countries have, have put a lot of stock in thermal energy systems and and there's opportunities there for fuel switching as well. Um, they obviously start off usually using fossil fuels, but there's opportunities along the way. How do you see uh, thermal energy systems figuring in a North American context? That's an interesting question because I've been I've studied that a lot over the last 25 years, but then I've, I kind of stopped studying it for a while. And in the last half year, I've been studying it again. <laughs> um, so one thing I'll say, well, I, I wrote a paper about a year ago with a, a French colleague and a Swedish colleague, and we were looking at you know where greenhouse gas reduction happened quickly in different jurisdictions at different times. So it can be weird stuff. It can be Ontario closing all its coal plants in 10 years. It can be France switching its electricity system to nuclear power in the 80s and early 90s. And it could be Sweden. The data I've looked at basically flipped its building sector 
in the 80s and into the 90s so that no longer, I mean, they weren't that well connected to natural gas systems. So we're in, in the centralized community district heating systems and combined heat and power systems that you're talking about, they've, they've run the gamut. You know, they've had coal there. They, they, they were oil, I think, in the 70s. And then they switched to coal because they thought we were all running out of oil. And they didn't realize coal might have a greenhouse gas effect. Uh, they weren't, we weren't thinking about that. And then, though, they, then they put, when they put in a carbon tax and some of the regulations, they really were able to quick, quite quickly flip those district heat systems in the way that you're just kind of describing. And they did it a lot of biomass and they did it with a lot of waste heat recovery and a lot of even sort of geothermal, I don't know if it was a lot, but some, some examples I've seen and heat pumps and things like that. And they, then they even went out and did it to, you know, just to houses that were not connected. So whether it's wood pellets and, uh, and other things that people are using. So the Swedish building sector changed quite rapidly to reduce its emissions by, I don't know, 80 or 90% in a 15-year time period. And so, yes, those systems have that potential, provided you're willing to use something like biomass or maybe start producing biogas. So, yeah, those things are interesting. And I think what's also interesting is while, you know, the, the Scandinavians and the Northern Europeans in general were able to put in quite a while ago the district heating infrastructure, all those heat pumps under the ground. We may not, you know, that covered kind of a community of 60,000 people or, uh, you know, or even the bigger communities, Copenhagen and so on. I think the way we're doing it now in North American cities is sort of one offs. Like, here's a new development going on. Why not a thermal energy system for that? And, and um, in British Columbia, as I've been looking into that, I've seen some really interesting developments happen. And so I, but of course, we do need to make sure that we're not just locking in some that will just be using natural gas. So at least the, the bigger demand here in British Columbia uh, has been, okay, you're not doing one of these things unless we can think of a way that this is going to be using bio you know, biomass, bioenergy, or combined with electric heat pumps for, for getting the hot the steam hot water that you're trying to distribute to buildings and so and then and then the issue is so i guess i'm not keen on us doing we have to remember electricity is already going to all of those houses and we are going to be beefing up the electricity distribution systems over the next couple of decades which is actually not that hard i say as a former regulator and so when we do that it could be that it's that you don't do as much district heating nearly as much as you've got in Northern Europe and you actually still just individual buildings or groups of buildings are running off of heat pumps, ground source heat pumps and so on. So it's the electricity system that's doing the work, not a thermal energy system. So you've been working in this space for several decades. You were clear on the challenge the planet faced right back into the late 1980s, which has obviously put you on this path. How do you stay inspired, given you know the denial that you've lived through? And while we might be moving out of that phase, there's still lots of resistance to change and difficulties in changing. How do, how do you keep inspired through all of that? I appreciate the question. It's not entirely easy to answer. Uh, <laughs> so first of all, I'm always a, a hopeful optimist 
problem solver by nature. And so that's partly my personality disposition. So that helps if you're going to work in this field. Also, I want to point out, I'm a real student of history. I read a lot of history. I read social history, political history, but especially social and health history and intellectual history. And I mean, going way back, you know, going back 500 years, 1,000 years, 1,500 years. And I think that helps because even, even that even helps during a pandemic. People, you know, during this pandemic, people rightly so are anxious and and for some, it's a, a tragedy, loss of loved ones, real health issues, uh, real anxieties. And I, I don't want to sound like I belittle any of that. I feel great compassion for that. But I also, let's say, talking with my four adult children, so they're, you know, they're in their late 20s and early 30s, I'll every now and then point out, but remember the plague of 1665. You know, here's what it was like for those people. There was no healthcare system. There was no science. And here's how many people were affected. You know, and in 1350, and 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 and, and here's the life expectancy. And here's here's what percentage of the population lived in this kind of way versus we only you know we learn through literature about the the ones who lived well. So my point is is that not that everything's always getting better, because I do because of as a history student I also know things can go terribly bad. But I think then the role of people like me is to be hopeful honest and creative. And, and so that's this latest book that I just quickly mentioned, but uh, The Citizen's Guide to Climate Success that I brought out last year with Cambridge University Press. And the subtitle is Overcoming Myths That Hinder Progress. And so that's, there's where I see my role. And then I've got this group of grad students in a research lab that I've had for these 30 years that when we meet every week, there's 12 of us on the Zoom photo. I can count them, <laughs> make sure they're there. And then my former graduates now are running major, you know, are in government and industry and think tanks. Working with them kind of keeps me young and optimistic and seeing their creativity and energy and determination is a great inspiration for me. Great. Lots to keep you inspired. So what, so what lies ahead? I actually got into all of this because uh, I guess I I was a youngster in the 60s and my older sisters kind of became environmentalists and there was the late 60s environmental movement. And, and I became someone who was always hiking in nature, convinced my father to take me out in the mountains all the time in British Columbia. And that's kind of why I, I, I got into environmental sustainability at a very at a sort of early teens. And it's, it's been my passion. What's interesting is I never thought that my career would be, in a way, kind of hijacked by one issue like uh, greenhouse gas emissions, because I'm actually more broadly interested in the challenges of sustainability. So, of course, CO2, you can call it the, the big one. Uh, but, but there will be others. And, and so I'm, I'm going to, I'm trying to sort of partly extricate myself from climate policy work, um, to start another book, which would be more about, you know, some of my, my work on climate says just what I was saying to you, we need to change how industry does things, how they make cars, how they make heating systems for houses and buildings, how they make cement, how they make electricity. And a lot of it is 
getting enough mobilized people to, to help push politicians to put in laws or pricing that causes change at the corporate sector in a, in, a, in a market economy. It's a capitalist economy. It's the entrepreneurs. And then how they make money and convince us to buy things is going to be important. And I'm really interested in all aspects of sustainability now. And, and so it isn't just the energy chain that leads to CO2 emissions and other greenhouse gases. It's all the materials we're using. So the plastics and so on. Because I believe that a lot of the solutions that I and others have talked about with climate are equally for how we use materials, how we mine, how we, how we recycle or don't recycle, how we design things. And so that's sort of, uh, I'm hoping <laughs> over the next five years to, to focus more in that direction, which has always been part of my teaching, but now to actually write something about it. Well, we look forward to reading more about that and, and learning how you apply what you've learned about greenhouse gases more broadly. Thank you so much, Mark. Wish you well, and thanks for your time. Karen, it was a real pleasure. Those were really fun questions. I, I very much enjoyed our discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Promethea Rising. This is the last episode in Season 2. Stay tuned for a new season of Promethea Rising as we continue to shine a light on people across Canada who are promoting energy-conscious communities. I would also like to recognize and thank my audio engineer, Avi Kaplan, who is also responsible for the original music of Promethea Rising. Thank you, Avi.